So it's on your mind, it's on Mike's mind, it's on my mind. We didn't coordinate our prayers for Afghanistan. But this week, we have been watching that really closely. And uh, you've probably seen things come across your Facebook feed from mission organizations who are encouraging us to pray for Christians in Afghanistan. I just want to speak to that for half a second. Um, you know, authoritarianism, wherever it shows up and whatever form it takes, whether it's communism or Islamic extremism, however you want to shake it, is a bad thing for everyone. Okay? It's not good for people not to be able to determine the outcome of their own lives. But when we're talking about a place like Afghanistan, where we all know the Taliban and what they're capable of, uh, our hearts should be especially heavy for our Christian brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, they, they, they told them early on, as soon as they captured the country, they, they gave them letters that said, we know who you are, we know where you meet, and we're coming for you. And I checked it up again this morning, and like the earliest reports um, are that Christians are already being beaten by the Taliban. So I hope you'll make it a, a daily thing um, to pray for Christians in Afghanistan as they suffer through the fires of persecution. Pray for their resolve, that they'd stay committed to Jesus when everything is stacked against them to make them recant or renounce him. And I pray that you'd, you'd I'm praying anyway, I hope you'll pray, that God would use their example to light a fire in Afghanistan so that the church grows in this season of persecution. And I have confidence that that's what he will do because they aren't the first Christians in the history of the world to suffer persecution. seems like that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's just kind of been the way Christians have, have gone about life for the past 2,000 years. It happened almost immediately. You can read about it in the book of Acts. As soon as the Christians start meeting together and organizing themselves as followers of Jesus, the Jews in Jerusalem undertake persecution. They round the Christians up, threw them in prison, beat them, you know, uh, harassed them in every way they could. But before the end of the first century, that sort of persecution ex expanded, and it even took on an official governmental tact where the Roman began persecuting Christians, systematically hunting them down. You can read the stories about Emperor Nero in the 60s AD. And it's likely that some of Mark's first readers, tradition tells us that Mark wrote his gospel from Rome, and so probably some of Mark's first readers would have known persecution through personal experience. And if they hadn't been persecuted, if they hadn't suffered for their faith themselves, they certainly knew people who did. You probably know that in those early days of the church in Rome, they began meeting secretly underground in tombs called the catacombs. And when those weren't available, they met secretly in private homes. But pretty quick, they developed a symbol by which they could identify themselves secretly to one another. They put it everywhere on walls and frescoes. Uh, you know, says that somebody would draw one arc on the ground, and then the other Christian would draw the other ark, giving the secret handshake that, hey, we're both Christians, we're safe. And this is called an ichthus. The Greek word for fish is ichthus. And the ichthus is a, a good symbol for Christianity. It's a ready symbol. You know the stories about Jesus multiplying fishes, uh, ichthoi, to, uh, to feed the thousands. You know about Jesus' promise, we're going to see it in two weeks in Mark 1.17, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So the fish is a, a wonderful symbol of Christianity. It's straight from Jesus' life and teaching. It's great. But an interesting thing happens, that they use the Greek phrase, the Greek word ichthus, as an acrostic. 
And, and I've put it up here for you, the, the different letters of the Greek alphabet, to, to stand for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It, it was meaningful to them, beyond the symbolic value of the fish and the way it jogged their memories and helped them remember the stories about Jesus and symbolize who they were as fishers of people. It was almost a personal statement of faith. Who do I believe that Jesus is? Jesus is the Messiah, God's Son, my Savior. And so the ichthus has been a symbol of Christianity for 2,000 years. You may even have one on the back of your vehicle, or Scott told me he had one hanging from his rearview mirror, and that's great. You symbolize and signify to the whole world that you are a Christian. So this morning, I want to think about one of these phrases. God's Son. God's Son. It's like this ichthus comes straight out of Mark's gospel. We saw last week that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the, the one promised by the prophets and proclaimed by John and prepared for by people. And today in our passage, we hear God's own voice declare him as his beloved son. You know, right out of the gate, Mark tells us in verse 1, the ichthus uh, principle, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the subject and content of his book. But unlike Matthew and Luke, and, and if you've been a Christian or you've been around the church very long, you've probably heard Christmas sermons where Matthew and, and Luke are held up as examples because they give us the stories about Jesus' infancy. They tell us how he came to be born in Bethlehem. And they tell us of the messenger sent from God to explain who this child was going to be. He's going to call us Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Mark doesn't do that. He just says in verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he gets right into it. He starts quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He starts describing John's ministry in the wilderness, and then all of a sudden in verse 9, he tells us just kind of matter-of-factly, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark doesn't explain what he means by Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And verse 9 doesn't help that much either. It just tells us, here's Jesus being baptized. Now, I kind of mentioned this at the end of my sermon last week, but when Jesus showed up at the River Jordan, he was just one pilgrim among a multitude of pilgrims. He comes with the crowds from Jerusalem and Judea, and he looked just like them. Nothing really about him stood out. In fact, the only thing Mark finds it worth talking about is the uh, sort of obscure hometown he comes from, a place called Nazareth. Nazareth had less than 500 people. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any other major work of Jewish literature. It wasn't on a major road. It was so bad that you maybe know this in, in the book of John when Jesus begins calling disciples. One of them finds out he's from Nazareth, and he says, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? And that's the only thing that's notable. That's the only thing that makes Jesus unique among the crowds. All of them, they're from Jerusalem and Judea. They're down there from by the temple. Jesus is from the middle of nowhere, Nazareth where nothing good comes from. But then you look at verse 10. And Jesus comes up out of the water, and like in half a second, all your doubts about who Jesus is are put to rest. And Mark tells us three things happen when he comes up out of the water. He says he saw the heavens opening, and then he saw the Spirit descending like a dove to rest upon him, and then he heard a voice come out of the heavens, You're my beloved Son. In you, I'm well pleased. Now, on its own, like, each element is significant. Yeah, I'm, it would be significant for you if when you got baptized, you came up out of the water, and you heard a voice from heaven, 
or you saw the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, or we're going to talk about this in a second, you saw the heavens being torn apart, you'd think like, hey, what was in that water? Okay, yeah, that'd be strange for you. Now, on their own, each one of them is significant, but you put them all together and something amazing is happening. It's like Mark wants us to see this before he starts telling us anything else about Jesus' life. He wants us to deal with these three phenomena that happen when Jesus comes up out of the water. And you just think about it. The first one's obvious. The, the one I want to hit first is the main one. A voice from heaven that says, you are my beloved son. We believe Jesus is God's son. The Christians in Rome, ichthus, believed he was God's son. Mark tells us in verse 1, Jesus is God's son. But what does that even mean? That's the first question we have to think about. What does it even mean? If you start to think about the phrase on its own, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased, you, you hear an echo of an earlier passage of Scripture, Psalm 2. And i got to believe that Jesus, who loved the Scriptures more than anybody who ever lived, and had them hidden in his heart from the time he was a child, would have heard the echo. You're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. He would have recognized right away the connection to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It's written to commemorate the coronation of God's anointed king in Jerusalem and to celebrate the coming justice that he was going to bring on the nations of the earth who had bucked off the yoke that God had placed on them. He says in Psalm 2-7, I'll surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You think about Psalm 2, and we think about the city of Jerusalem, and we think about what David's throne and his court must have looked like, how it must have smelled with fragrant oils, and how it must have sounded with beautiful harp playing all the rich tapestries that would have been around. And you get the picture of Coronation Day. The king stepping up and taking his place on the throne of Jerusalem, ready to be God's anointed over his people. But you're not really prepared. And I preached on Psalm 2, I think, last year. So if you want to go on the website, you can track it down. You're not really prepared for the exalted language. I'll tell of the decree of the Lord, you are my son, today I've begotten you. You're like, really? You're just a human king. But that's the truth. Conrad Schaefer says that the language of Psalm 2 is so exalted because the Davidic dynasty, which the psalm celebrates, is the fulfillment of God's divine promises and the focus of His covenant with God's chosen people. And you know this from the history of the Bible. When there's a good king over Jerusalem, it seems like everything's great for the people of God. There's reasons to rejoice. He's causing God's uh, word to take root in the nation. He's rooting out idolatry, and God is blessing but when there's a bad king, he leads the people astray and brings God's judgment upon them. But Psalm 2 is also a recognition that God is faithful to a promise, a promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. He said that when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. Psalm 2 celebrates God's faithfulness to his everlasting covenant that he made to David. There would always be one of his descendants on the throne. But then over the 400 years from exile to John showing up in the wilderness, God's people started processing what Psalm 2 really meant. And what God was after in Samuel 7. That there was more to it than God anointing David 
Y'all know David, man after God's own heart, but sort of failed massively. You know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, built the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Psalm 122. I'm standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Here's Solomon's temple. And yet he had hundreds of wives set up altars to false gods. His own son separated the kingdom, the two. I mean, they knew pretty much right off the bat that there was more to this promise than David or Solomon, one of the lousy kings they'd had after them. They started to see that maybe there was something else. Maybe there was another king coming, a Messiah, an anointed king who would finally show up and rule over the nations. He'd break them with his rod of iron, and he would bring them under the rule of God's law. I think Mark is at pains for us to see that when God says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, he's thinking of the anointed king of Psalm 2. You're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give the nations to you as an inheritance. Jesus is the son of God mentioned in Psalm 2, the king to reign over his people. But then there's another connection in God's declaration over him. Because the Davidic king of Psalm 2 wasn't the first individual in the scriptures to be called the son of God. And it actually wasn't any individual. But the first time you see this phrase, son of God, and God's talking about his son, my son, it comes when Moses is talking to Pharaoh and warning him about the final plague, the death of the firstborn child. And this is what God instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh, and this is Exodus 4, verse 22. Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you've refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Later, God thinks back to this exodus and the miracles he worked to bring his people out of Egypt. And he says in Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So when God thinks about Israel, he doesn't think about them primarily in national terms, like an ethnic group or a political boundary line on some map somewhere. He thinks about them as people, as a, as a people who are in covenant with him. They are his treasured possession, set apart for his glory and fame in the world. And as his firstborn son, they hold a special place in his heart. In the ancient world, the firstborn son was always the son who received the inheritance. And he was the one who, as he got older, began to represent his father in the community and world. That's why the, the Proverbs can talk about how horribly shameful it is to have a firstborn child who goes after folly and doesn't walk in the way of wisdom because it reflects back on the Father. And God knew that that was what Israel was called to. They were called to reflect His glory to the nations. He'd set them apart to receive His inheritance. He called it an, a promised land. I'm going to give you the promised land. And they were to be a light to the nations. Who is it who has a God like their God and who has a law like their God's law? That's who they were supposed to be. They were their firstborn of God. His special treasured possession. But of course, by the time of Jesus, Israel had recognized how badly they had messed that up. They were supposed to receive the inherited promised land, but God had exiled them, cast them out. They're supposed to represent him to the world, but the world was ruling over them. They had failed massively. And now all that was left was a remnant pilgrim people who were going out to the River Jordan to be baptized by a guy in a camel skin shirt eating locusts and wild honey. They'd messed up, they'd failed. But then the voice from heaven. 
You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Where Israel had failed to live up to their identity as the Son of God, set apart to receive an inheritance and represent God in the world, Jesus was going to succeed. He's the one who came to receive the inheritance. Ask of me and I'll give the nations as an inheritance. That's Psalm 2.8. And he's the one who makes God known to the world. So when we say that Jesus is God's Son, this is what we mean. That he has a totally unique relationship to God, unlike anyone else who's ever lived. That relationship was foreshadowed by Israel and the Davidic king. But where they had failed, he would succeed. He's not any old pilgrim just walking out of the river. He's the eternal Son of God who was with the Father from the beginning, who in the fullness of time took on flesh to come and fulfill God's plan for his people. I mean, you look across the New Testament and you see it over and over and over again. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says that in the past God spoke to our fathers in many times and in many ways through the prophets, but in the last days He's spoken to us through His Son, who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus told His disciples, Have you not figured it out? The person who's seen Me has seen the Father. This totally unique identity, unlike anyone else who ever lived, is what God means when He says, you're my beloved son, and with you I'm well pleased. But then Mark describes these two other phenomena, which are amazing on their own, like I told you. When Jesus comes up out of the water, my Bible, which I preach in the New American Standard Bible, says that Jesus saw the heavens opening. He saw the heavens opening. But a more literal translation would say, he saw the heavens being torn. And the NIV gets close to that. If you've got an NIV, you see what I mean. The Greek verb behind both, uh, both of those, opening or being torn, is this verb schizo. And it's only used one other time in Mark's gospel, in Mark 15, 38, where it says that after Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Only other time that word's used. It's torn in two. I think that's significant. I don't think Jesus witnessed, you know, the curtains being drawn back like a beautiful play is about to be in her. Ballerina is about to come out on stage. I think he witnessed a violent tearing apart of the fabric of the universe. That for a moment, the normal barrier that separated heaven where God is and earth where we are was split in two. And Jesus got a glimpse of reality. And thankfully, there were people there and Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it down so we get to see the reality. Now, there's going to be a lot of confusion about Jesus' identity throughout the Gospel of Mark. Who is this that even the winds and sea obey him? What is this teaching? Teaching with authority, not like the scribes. People are so confused. We thought this was Mary's son, the carpenter. There's confusion. But here there is clarity. We get a glimpse to what's real. Jesus is the Son of God who'd come in the flesh. The Father says it, the Son receives it, and the Spirit affirms it by resting on Jesus. We're prepared for the Spirit. Y'all with me still? We're prepared for the Spirit. John said that somebody was coming after him, that he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandal, and he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I told you last week that through the prophets, God had promised in the end times that he was going to pour out his Spirit. Right? I, I tried to tell you that. 
He said He's going to send His Spirit to bring blessing on Israel in Isaiah 44.3, to enable their obedience in Ezekiel 36.27. He's going to enable their ministry. All your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy and your old men are going to dream dreams in Joel 2.28 and 29, and to establish His presence among them. Haggai 2.5. That was what they were holding out hope for. The prophets proclaimed it. The people prepared for it. And now, it was happening. See, Isaiah 42 The Lord says, Behold my servant, in whom my soul delights, the one I uphold. I've put my spirit upon him, and he'll bring justice to the nations. Listen, at Jesus' baptism, God publicly affirmed his true identity as his unique son, who was qualified to reveal God to his people and to bring in the fulfillment of all God's promises. That's what we mean when we say God's son, which is a a mouthful. But I hope you got that. I hope you're going to memorize it or tattoo it on your heart because Jesus is the Son of God uniquely, unlike anyone else. But I don't imagine that you disagree with me on that. Like I said, ichthus, we've been talking about it as Christians for 2,000 years. I think the struggle we have, and maybe I'm alone in this, the struggle I have is what exactly does that mean? You know, is this just a metaphysical, theoretical, theological statement? Or is there something to this? And you know, there were people in the early church who, who struggled with it. They denied that Jesus was God's unique son. They said Jesus of Nazareth was a, a good-hearted man who was completely devoted to God's law. And because of his obedience, God awarded him with the Spirit and adopted him as his son. Now, even today, there are people who say Jesus is a good example of a good life lived. Or that he, he had some great teachings But they would stop short from saying that he's uniquely the Son of God come down from heaven for sinners. But it's like, and I've tried to wrap my mind around this this week. It's like before Mark gets into the main action, commentators call verses 1 through 13 the prologue to Mark's gospel. And it's like before Mark can even get down to the nitty-gritty of the details of Jesus' life, he's forcing us to deal with this fact. Jesus is God's Son. Before we can hear the cross, the resurrection, before we can see Jesus cast demons out, before we can hear His teaching, before He can call disciples, before He can announce the coming of His kingdom, we have to deal with this fact. Jesus is God's Son. And here's what I believe. That it is as God's Son that Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. It is as God's Son that He casts out demons and has authoritative teaching. It's as God's Son that He brings the reality of the kingdom present for people back then. That is who Jesus is, God's Son. And if you don't believe that, if you don't get that, you can't receive the rest of the gospel. You have to see that Jesus is God's Son. And it's because as God's Son, He identifies with His people. And maybe you're like me and you you read this and you're like, what does it mean that Jesus is God's Son? And how could God's Son go into the waters for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? I mean, Mark's reader certainly knew that Jesus was a sinless man, that he lived his life without ever deviating from God's commandments. I mean, we know that. We know he lived a perfect life, free from sin in every way. So why would he go out down into the water with everybody else to receive a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? He didn't have any sins to repent for or anything that he needed to be forgiven of. Either way, William Lane explains it in his commentary. He says that In receiving baptism with the people, Jesus shows that he's not an isolated individual responsible only for his righteousness. He shares in the heritage and predicament of the people. 
In other words, when Jesus went into the water to be baptized, he wasn't baptized for his own sins, but he was baptized to identify with his people who were fully aware and fully humble in recognizing their own sins. And this is one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. If you're new to Christianity, if you don't know details about Jesus, you need to hear this. This is so amazing. The Bible tells us that though Jesus existed in the form of God, that he was with God from the beginning, that he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. He willingly exchanged the glory of eternal existence for life on earth. And so he identified with his people in baptism. And then he kept on identifying with them in every situation and circumstance of his life. He knew weariness and hunger. He was betrayed by his best friend with a kiss. He said, I was with you guys every day. Are you really going to come out here with clubs and torches like I'm some kind of common criminal? He knew loss. He wept when his best friend died. When he was at his lowest, going up for a kangaroo court, mock trial, whatever, none of his friends were around. Even the guy who had sworn to his face, I'll never deny you, denies him three times. And not like a way where Jesus didn't have to witness it. The Scriptures say over and over and over again that when Peter denied Christ the third time, they met eyes. I mean, he knew what it meant to be abandoned by friends. And even in his last dying breath, he cries out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, why would God's unique Son do that? The Scriptures tell us that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he's been tempted in all things as we are. Church, we don't have the high priest who sits in the heavens and laughs at us like the gods of Greek mythology, you know, pulling strings behind the scenes to see how bad he can mess things up. No. The truth of Jesus' sonship is not theoretical, it's not theological minutia to be debated by theologians. It's deeply personal, practical, and ought to be cherished by every Christian because it matters that Jesus is the Son of God because it tells us that God Himself willingly took on the brokenness that you and I experience every day. He did that for us. The Son of God, not some good man, not some great teacher. God Himself took the form of a servant to identify with you. And He identified with you so that He could provide you a way out of your brokenness. You see, it's as God's Son that Jesus won victory for us. After God's affirmation of Jesus' Sonship, you're my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased, the Spirit descends and rests on Him. And the Spirit impels Him, forces Him. He casts Him out into the wilderness. Mark tells us that He was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now Mark doesn't go into the detail that Matthew and Luke do on Jesus' temptation, but it apparently tells us enough that during those days of hunger and temptation, Jesus resisted every scheme that Satan could throw at him. Every, everything that he brought up. Hey, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really supposed to receive the nations as an inheritance, why don't you just bypass the cross? 
kneel to me, and I'll give you all the nations of the earth. But everything Satan threw at him, he denied. Quoted scripture at it. He confronted the horror of the wilderness, the desert, the loneliness, the danger of wild beasts. He did it all. Mark Nutt tells us eventually he even enters into the horror of death itself. He lays down his life for his friends. And every step along the way, he proves that Satan, the wilderness, wild animals, demons, death, hell, the grave, whatever you want to throw at me, I'm the Son of God. And I'm going to produce victory for my people. Yeah, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was out without sin. Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, not just for His own sake, but so that He might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know the verse, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. His only begotten, His unique Son. His firstborn, His cherished, prized possession. The one who identifies Him to the world and receives an inheritance from Him. He gave Him so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, church, Mark wants us to see, before we get into the details of Jesus' life, that He is God's Son who identifies with His people and wins victory for us. That is who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is for you. For you. If you know Jesus as God's Son, you've thought about this before, but I encourage you to think deeply about it today as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. That Jesus left His place in heaven to identify with you. He left the glory of God surrounded by angels whose sole job is to worship and praise Him, to live among a people who hated Him, who spit at Him, who conspired against Him and sought a way to kill Him. And he did it all for you. He knew hunger and suffering and loss for you. Each step along the way, he was carrying the burdens you carry so that he could say to you legitimately, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Exchange your ashes for beauty, your sorrow and heaviness for the joy of the Lord. That's what he wants for you. That's what he came to give you. He knows it all. There's no circumstance, no situation in your life that is closed off to Jesus because of that, the author of Hebrews tells us that we can come to Him with boldness for mercy and grace in a time of need. Today's a perfect day to remind yourself of that truth. That Jesus is not just a moral example showing you the right way to live. He's not just a teacher giving you good principles to help you have a, a happy life. He's the Son of God who entered into your brokenness to bring you through it. So have you been holding on to something? Have you been carrying your own burdens trying to do it Jesus' way? then listen, today remember He identified with you and provided you victory through it. And you think about that victory where He resisted temptation. And you think about His resurrection on the third day where He proved He was who He says He was and that He had power over death, hell, and the grave. You think about Him bursting forth triumphant and no grave going to hold His body down. You think about Him on His heavenly throne having received the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess and every knee would bow that He is Lord. You think about that. And then you remember, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that we are seated with Him now in the heavenly places. That He didn't go there 
by himself. But he went there bringing people with him. And your future destiny is with Jesus forever and ever and ever for all eternity. That means it doesn't matter the situations you find yourselves in. John says in 1 John 5, 5, Who is this who overcomes the world but the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the promise that Jesus makes to us. That he came so that we might be his children, so that we might be with him forever, so that we don't have to be slaves to our sin, but we might present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. I know how sin is. I know how it reminds us of our weakness. It tells us, hey, you'll never be any different than you are today. You're never going to kick this habit. You can't be anything other than what you currently are. But doesn't Jesus show us that that's not quite the case? That he identified with us in our weakness, not so he could show genuine empathy, but so that he could bring us through it, that we'd be new creations in him. So remind yourself today that in Christ you are new, that whatever your heart tells you, whatever the enemy wants to fill your ears with, you are his child, his treasured possession. He set his love on you from before time began, and in Christ you're even with him now in the heavenly places. And maybe today you've been having that inner monologue or dialogue, or argument with God, however you want to put it. I've been there. And you're thinking maybe for the first time, maybe Jesus is more than a good example or a good teacher. Maybe you're, you're starting to be convinced that Jesus is God's Son. Well, let me just make it clear to you what the Bible says. And I do this every week, and I hope you've heard it before, but if you've never heard it again, you need to listen very carefully. The Bible tells us that when it was just God, before anything existed other than Him, He created our world, and He prepared a perfect place for people on it. He made mankind as the crowning achievement of His creative week, and He gave them a law, one rule. And when they disobeyed Him and rebelled against His authority, they brought His judgment upon them. And by their act of sin, they gave to us a sinful nature, a nature that only wants what it wants and not what God wants. Because of that, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that we're all like sheep. We go astray, every last one of us. Paul says in Romans 3 that we all sin and have fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us finds ourselves right where those first people were, under the judgment and condemnation of God. But God loved us and didn't want to leave us to our sin. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus, to live the sinless life that you and I should have lived, perfectly obeying God in every command, and to die the death that we deserve, the just punishment for our sin. And he raised him up on the third day, proving he was who he says he was, and extending the offer to everyone that if they repent of their sins and trust him in faith, they'll be saved. Paul says it, it's simple. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved saved. The promise of that salvation is simple. That by faith we become children of God. We become His adopted children, ready to receive the blessings that Jesus secured for Himself. They're, they're given to us because Christ did it for us. And that means there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are living as enemies of God, and there are people who are living as His children. I wonder, which are you? Are you living as an enemy of God? Living for yourself? 
You're doing what you want, when you want it. Or have you come to experience what it means to know Jesus as the Son of God, to receive the salvation that He died to bring? This morning, I invite you to join Christians through the ages in far-off places like Afghanistan and Rome to confess your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, to know what it means to have new life in Him, to receive the blessing of His Spirit, adoption into His family, life with Him forever. If you're having that monologue, today's the day to settle it, to receive what Jesus offers. Will you all pray with me?